Hello and welcome back to the Australian Histories podcast. Today we're going to continue our look at Governor Bly and the Rum Rebellion. We started last episode by looking at the fledgling society in New South Wales and the corruption that had evolved under the watch of the New South Wales Corps and the early governors. The New South Wales Corps, known colloquially as the Rum Corps, were heavily involved in self-serving and monopolistic ventures on the side, particularly in importation and distribution of rum. Any change in the status quo could see their lucrative arrangements cease, and many in the Corps strongly resisted such changes being introduced by the governors, instead working to undermine and discredit them so that they could more easily maintain control themselves. Into this difficult environment came Captain William Bly to replace the rather overwhelmed Governor King. Today we want to look at Bly and consider what he was expected to undertake on behalf of the British government in New South Wales, Would he have the capacity to clean up the corruption? What and who would he be up against? If you haven't listened to episode 52 yet, it might be worth going back and doing so first to get the background of just what state New South Wales was in prior to Bly's arrival and how that was going to affect his ability to govern. Just quickly, I'd like to thank Mark H, Maria G, Vicky D and Kev for making contributions to the upkeep of the podcast recently via the one-off donation link on the Australian Histories podcast webpage. These contributions help fund the research and hosting costs so that the podcast can remain ad-free and independent. I'm so glad you're still enjoying the work and I greatly appreciate your support. Also, thanks to those who left lovely reviews lately. It's always a delight to hear how you're enjoying the podcast. All right, let's continue our look at Bly and the Rum Rebellion. Bly was a naval man, like the governors before him, who had started young and risen through the ranks, displaying exceptional skills and abilities. But more recently, he had also had his share of controversy, and the opinions of him that we can look at reflect the complexity of his personality. His public persona saw him hailed as both a hero and a villain. Despite some difficult periods in his naval career, those with influence maintained their faith in his abilities and identified him as the most appropriate person to replace the retiring Governor King. Whether he was the best man for the job or not remains the question. No longer at war, at the helm of a naval vessel, he had been recommended and encouraged to take the New South Wales Governor's post by his prominent friend, Joseph Banks, who continued to stick his bib into Australian business for a good many years. Banks, in trying to interest Bly in the appointment, advised him, I have always taken a deep interest in the colony's success and have been constantly consulted by His Majesty's ministers, King, the governor, is tired of his situation, and well he may be so. He has carried into effect a reform of great extent, directly affecting the soldiers and settlers there. He is consequently disliked and much opposed, and has asked for leave to return. In conversation, I was this day asked if I knew a man proper to be sent out in his stead, one who has integrity unimpeached a mind capable of providing its own resources in difficulties, without leaning on others for advice, firm in discipline, civil in deportment, and not subject to whimper and whine when severity of discipline is wanted to meet emergencies. And I answered, 
I know of no one but Captain Bly who will suit. Unquote. So certainly Banks felt Bly a man of impeccable integrity, resourcefulness, suited in character and temperament, firm in discipline, and uncomplaining. It would seem that Bly's recent troubles related to the bounty mutiny, resulting in a court-martial and unflattering evidence given by the mutinous soldiers and their supporters, had in no way diminished Bly's standing for those at the heights of the naval hierarchy, the government, and amongst the prominent men advising the government, such as Joseph Banks. Evert reminds us that in recommending and persuading Bly to take the post, we have a strong indication that his posting was no attempt to simply remove a naval embarrassment and shelve Bly out of sight far away in New South Wales, as some may have suggested. Far from it, putting Bly on furlough or in charge of an obscure navy vessel with a worthless mission would have better achieved that end had it been desired. Instead, so convinced was Banks that Bly was the man for the job, he arranged for Bly to be offered twice the pay of the retiring Governor King, and arranged various part payments and naval pension continuations to tempt him to pause his naval career and undertake the demanding and isolated post instead. With the promised income, the family could expect to make massive savings during his service and build quite a comfortable nest egg during these later years of his career. Perhaps the increased wage was some kind of better recognition, at least, that they were asking a lot of the men that they sent out there to rule. Banks also reminded Bly, should his daughters accompany him to the developing colony, that they would, quote, have a better chance of marrying suitably as the colony grows richer every year and something of trade seems to improve. I can have no doubt that in a few years there will be men there very capable of supporting wives in a creditable manner and very desirous of taking them from a respectable and good family, unquote. <laughs> well, good point. Bly's less than glittering social standing would be much higher in the colony and there were still many more men there than women. Such odds might facilitate numerous matrimonial prospects for those troublesome and costly daughters. <laughs> Good effort in putting a shine on the crappy penal colony too, Banks. Just as you've pointed out how difficult many of the inhabitants are. But, you know, it's a truth universally acknowledged that getting girls married off is a priority. Well, if there's one good thing to be said about Bly, it's that he loved his wife and daughters, and he didn't seem moved by that argument at all. Only the already married daughter joined him in New South Wales. One final temptation may have been that Philip, after his move from captain to New South Wales governor, finished his career as an admiral. So Bly would have had little to lose in accepting the role, and though initially reluctant, Bly was persuaded to think on the matter. Born in Devon in 1754, Bly joined the Navy at the ridiculously tender age of seven, beginning his career listed as servant to Captain Stewart of HMS Monmouth. So he was steeped in a Navy education and culture from childhood, and the Navy life appeared to suit him. By 17, he'd been appointed midshipman and spent almost three years serving in the West Indies. Then he moved up to become master's mate, stationed on the Isle of Man, deterring smugglers there. His skills and aptitude for navigation, cartography and hydrography were so well appreciated that aged only 22, he then became the sailing master, that is, the officer responsible for navigation and sailing, on Cook's resolution. In consultation with Cook, he would suggest the course and the sails to be set to achieve it, and maintain the charts and equipment they would use on the journey, a post requiring great skill and responsibility from a 22-year-old. 
The Resolution was a vessel that Cook used on his third and final tour of the Pacific, and the young Bly was recommended by the First Lord of the Admiralty for the post. Cook was very pleased with the skills and aptitude Bly already exhibited, and he wrote with praise about him in the ship's journals. It's likely that Bly made Joseph Banks's acquaintance around this time too, another man who saw great potential in his abilities. On this resolution voyage, they made landfall at Tahiti. Bly would gain some knowledge of the conditions there, so they would be at least a little familiar to him on future visits. Later in that fateful expedition, Cook was killed in Hawaii, and a devastated Bly would be required to navigate their return to England. Not only were the exploration and navigation skills of Cook absorbed gratefully by Bly, but he also witnessed a captain who was always mindful of his duty of care to his crew. Cook was always keen to ensure his men were well fed, exercised as best they could be, and living in clean quarters. And Bly would do so in the future too. Like Cook, Bly would become a captain who recorded very few losses due to poor health and conditions, which could be a problem on other voyages. He reached the rank of captain by 1790, at just 36 years old, which marked him out as extraordinary. But Burroughs suggests he absorbed some of Cook's bad habits too. Cook, while generally a steady commander, would become more difficult as he tired during his long voyages and could display, quote, violent bouts of rage and swear violently, unquote. Bly was later known for the same outbursts, accompanied by physical stamping and aggressive hand gestures, basically what sounds like a full-grown temper tantrum. One biographer noted how similar they were, stating, quote, both excelled in seamanship, exploration, hydrography and surveying. Both were humane and brave, and both had hasty tempers and swore. <laughs> well, there's worse ways to be described, I suppose. Despite his naval and mercantile career, and the resulting regular absences, he appeared to have a warm and happy marriage to Elizabeth Beetham, and they had eight children in total, though their twin boys died very soon after their birth. Of the girls, only the second eldest was to accompany him to New South Wales. His wife, Elizabeth, had a horror of travelling by sea and just could not bear to accompany him, so taking on the governor's role had to be carefully considered as to what was best for the whole family. It would require a four-year commitment, and so a lengthy separation would need to be endured by all. He confessed to Banks his hesitation in taking the New South Wales role was largely that, quote, he dreaded the separation from his wife, who had united her lot with his for thirty years, unquote and the affairs surrounding his captaincy of the bounty in the years prior had already caused her great anxiety. Bly asked about the availability of a paid position for his naval lieutenant's son-in-law, John Putland, to act as his aide-de-camp, which was allowed, and so his daughter Mary was able to join her husband and act for her father as the Lady of Government House in New South Wales. Despite Banks's tempting suggestion they might find ideal husbands in the cesspit of convicts and desperate men sent to Port Jackson, for some reason, the other daughters opted to stay home in England. <laughs> so let's just return again to look at Bly's earlier exploits, before the New South Wales post was under consideration. His previous naval career saw him undertake several tours of duty, including fighting in campaigns such as the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War and the Siege of Gibraltar where the 18-year-old Fletcher Christian was also in service. And he worked in the merchant service when Navy posts were unavailable, also sometimes with Christian in his crew. 
But the episode implies life that is probably most well known before his posting to New South Wales was the mutiny on the bounty. In 1787, Bly had been selected by the ever-attentive Joseph Banks to be commander of the Bounty. The Bounty was to collect breadfruit trees from Pacific Island Tahiti, which they hoped could be cultivated in British colonial plantations in the West Indies as a food crop for the enslaved Africans there. And it is this command on the Bounty that perhaps most people will associate with Bly's name. So we'll recount a little of that saga. The Bounty was a rather small ship and only had a small crew. Critically, there would be no military guard on board for that voyage, but Bly was likely to have started out feeling fairly confident in his mission, because he had chosen several of the crew himself, including the friend he had served with a couple of times in the Merchant Navy, one Fletcher Christian. They seemed to have a good rapport and a healthy working relationship, one which continued on the Bounty voyage at least up until leaving Tahiti for the return to England. Some sources describe Bly as a mentor to Christian in developing his sailing and navigation skills. The Bounty voyage did start badly, though, with delays before they even left port, then bad weather forcing them to change tack while underway and take the longer route around the Cape of Good Hope. Not yet knowing much about the breadfruit plant, they would discover that these delays meant they would arrive in Tahiti in the wrong season. They would need to wait a further five months there until January, when the wet season started, before the young breadfruit plants would be strong enough to transport. It's often argued that this unplanned, long sojourn in the paradise of Tahiti actually set in motion the eventual mutiny on the bounty. When the time finally came to depart, many of the crew were reluctant to leave for an uncomfortable trip home, being bossed about, returning to a life in the chill of the Northern Hemisphere. To be fair, there were just as many who were keen to have their mission completed and to return to families back home, but there was a substantial level of discontent amongst the crew as they set sail. And their journey across the seas to cold old Blighty would be even more cramped and uncomfortable than the voyage out, as the large cabins were then being used to house the precious seedlings. Certainly discipline on board after many months living in the happy tropical environment was not as dedicated as it needed to be for the naval service, and some suggest the lack of marines supporting the directives of the captain in maintaining order and obedience was another crucial problem. Though I imagine even if marines had been sent, it's likely even some of those well-trained and disciplined men may also have fallen in love with the idyllic Pacific Island lifestyle, just as many of the crew had. Nevertheless, the Bounty and its reluctant crew members did depart Tahiti at the beginning of April 1789. But almost predictably, not long into the voyage, about half the crew, led to the great surprise of Bly by his protégé and friend Fletcher Christian, mutinied and took command of the ship, intending to sail it back to Tahiti. The mutiny is an interesting tale itself, with betrayal, intrigue and an astounding story of survival one that involves an ongoing legacy that includes murderous mayhem between the mutineers and the remaining descendants of some of them originally settled on the remote Pitcairn Island, later relocating to Norfolk Island. But the upshot for Bly was that he and his 18 loyal supporters were cast adrift in the Pacific in a 22-foot or 7-metre launch with the gunwales barely above the waterline. The mutiny crew must have known this was very likely a death sentence for the men aboard, and probably this was the result they needed, despite not wanting to murder them right there. 
because should any of the men survive and report the mutiny, the mutineers knew they would be hunted down and may themselves hang. But, giving them at least the appearance of a fighting chance, the mutineers allowed Bly and his men to take some supplies that might aid survival, including four swords, about a week's supply of food and water, and a quadrant and compass. Luckily for the men aboard, all Bly's leadership, seamanship and navigation skills resulted in all but one man surviving what would be an epic 6,700-kilometre or 4,160 miles sea voyage. After a shaky start and a hostile reception at a Pacific island where they tried to get help, after 47 days in that tiny open boat, in often stormy weather, they finally navigated successfully through the Barrier Reef and the Torres Strait. The survivors arrived at Kupang, a settlement on Timor. It's a story worth following up just for the survival skills. It was later claimed that the mutiny was precipitated by Bly's appalling, cruel and bullying behaviour. Indeed, one of the bounty officers, Fryer, who ended up in the small boat adrift with Bly, reported an exchange he had heard between Christian and Bly just the day before the mutiny took place. Bly was heard to have aggressively berated Christian over some matter, and then Christian responded, quote, Sir, your abuse is so bad that I cannot do my duty with any pleasure. I have been in hell for weeks with you, unquote. So there is no doubt there was heightened friction and a sense that Bly was short-tempered and verbally abusive. But the crew, being difficult and obstinate, not really wanting to leave and being uncooperative, probably caused more friction than was usual. Bly may well have been bossier on the way home, but the crew may have been more trying too. Bly's logs from the time do not indicate that he was aware of any unusual antagonism with Christian, right up until the surprising overthrow, recording later, quote, I was on the most friendly terms with Christian. That very day he was to have dined with me, unquote. So perhaps he was being overbearing, but failed to recognise it. However, such an attitude was unlikely to be unusual for a Navy captain. It's important to understand the motivations and legacy of the story of the bounty mutiny, though, as Bly's reputation really is tied closely with that incident and leaches into the picture we have of him later as the failed New South Wales governor. Our perception of him is strongly coloured by the folklore that grew up after the Bounty Mutiny and the court cases and media that followed, including intentional reputational vilification of Bly in order to redeem the reputation of others involved. The mutineers, several of whom were afterwards caught and tried in England, always maintained that Bly was a tyrant and they were forced to act in self-defence, but others gave evidence that Bly was no worse a disciplinarian than the average captain and naval officer of the era. In fact, McCannus notes that there were relatively few disciplinary incidents on the demanding outward journey, the most trouble recorded relating to discontent with the alcoholic surgeon they had aboard. In a letter that Bly wrote, for delivery home by a ship they had met at sea in March 1788, his optimism for the voyage was clear early on, quote, we are all in good spirits, and my little ship fit to go round a half-score of worlds. My men are all active and good fellows, and what has given me much pleasure is that I have not yet been obliged to punish anyone. My officers and young gentlemen are all tractable and well-disposed, and we now understand each other so well that we shall remain so the whole voyage. Unless I fall out with a doctor, who I have trouble to prevent from being in bed fifteen hours out of twenty-four, unquote. In order to keep his crew fit and healthy, he employed some interesting tactics. 
along with insisting the men eat an anti-scurvy diet, as Cook had done in the years before, he had, quote, engaged a fiddler in order that by dancing the men should obtain regular exercise aboard, unquote. And that dancing was compulsory, though it might be a stretch to call it tyrannical. And he insisted on hot breakfasts, a reduced watch schedule to allow for better rest, and demanded complete cleanliness of their environment and persons. Well, not the worst idea I've heard, but of course not complying would bring consequences. Sadly, though, within days of writing the letter, noting no disciplinary action was required, there was punishment meted out to a crewman, Quintal, for insolence and contempt shown to the master. However, Evett suggests there is no real evidence to support any allegations of unusual cruelty under his command reminding us that while the disciplinary measures used at that time will certainly appear harsh to us today, judged by contemporary standards of the age, they were in no way excessive for usual Navy punishment. Indeed, while in charge in New South Wales, he had been recorded as reducing the 200-lash penalty that one person was sentenced to by the magistrates down to 100, stating, quote, it was my wish and intention, as much as possible, to dispense with corporal punishment, and never, when necessary, to permit it to be too severe, unquote. Well, 100 lashes still sounds barbaric to us, but his action and his leniency was noted as unusual. But there would be more disciplinary action required on the bounty's remaining outward journey, as well as some during their stay in Tahiti, even if not at the usual rate that might be expected for such a time in service. Without marines on board who would implement the punishments, Bly had to have crewmen lashing crewmen, and this probably created more tension than it might have in the usual course of a naval voyage. But punishment was a way of life in the Navy. While at Kupang, Bly wrote reports of the mutiny for the Navy commanders, and also wrote a warm letter to his wife, including the following words reflecting on his survival. Quote, what an emotion does my heart and soul feel that I have once more an opportunity of writing to you and my little angels, particularly as you have been so near losing the best of friends. Know then, my own dear Betsy, I have lost the bounty. Christian, with several others, came into my cabin while I was asleep and seized me, holding naked bayonets at my breast, tied my hands behind my back. I demanded of Christian, the case of such a violent act, and severely degraded him for his villainy, but he could only answer, Not a word, sir, or you are dead. It was a circumstance I could not foresee. I had not sufficient officers, and had they granted me marines, most likely the affair would never have happened. Give my blessings to our children, and tell them I shall soon be home. To you, my love, I give all that an affectionate husband can give, love, respect, and all that is or ever will be in the power of your ever-affectionate friend and husband, William Bly. Arriving back in England in March 1790, news of the outrageous mutiny began circulating, and reports were full of praise for Bly. His leadership and navigation skills and his daring survival story brought him great kudos. The public and the establishment were in awe of Bly and his ability to get his castaways to safety across such a vast expanse, and opinion was at the time that he had done nothing to deserve any of the mutinous behaviour. Burroughs said, quote, Disaster was turned into personal triumph, and he became an instant celebrity. Honourably acquitted, and now a man of distinction, he was introduced to the king, and the admiralty rewarded him with promotion, unquote. 
He was exonerated at his own court-martial, the court recording that the bounty was violently and forcibly seized by Fletcher Christian and his supporters, and that Bly and his officers could not be held responsible for that loss. And he was immediately promoted to commander and made available to serve on other naval ships, so it was clear they had no concern about his ability to command. The Navy determined that the mutineers needed to be located and brought to justice, and a vessel was dispatched to Tahiti to round up any mutineers that they could find in the region, and some were recovered. So, at first, the public opinion was strongly with Bly. Later, as the mutineers began to make their desperate cases, and the brother of Fletcher Christian in particular mounted a very forceful campaign to clear his name, Bly began being painted as an unbearable despot, and the pendulum of public opinion swung away somewhat. The public became more ready to believe he had been a tyrant. In Edward Christian's account of the court-martial, he claimed it was Bly's intemperate behaviour that had forced his charming and moderate brother, Fletcher, into the extraordinary action, thereafter being called a mutiny, and that idea may remain a strong influence on us in assessing Bly today. For those old movie fans, perhaps we can blame the young Marlon Brando for being the hunky good guy to Trevor Howard's despicable Bly in the old 1962 classic Mutiny on the Bounty. (laughs) It remains difficult to ascertain if Bly's admittedly hot temper and foul mouth was really any more odious than many other captains in the fleet, or whether the temptations of Tahiti had simply made the crew less willing to put up with any of that bossy Navy business when Paradise beckoned instead. That he could dish it out is undeniable. He certainly had complaints lodged by his subordinates, including one only a year before his post to New South Wales, actually. So he was no cuddly bear either, for sure. Listen to this outrage he yelled at one crewman. What, sir? You damned rascal! You damned scoundrel! Never was a man troubled with such a set of blackguards as I am. Take care, sir. I am looking out for you. Unquote. So, language and threats of keeping an eye on him, eh? Well, I'm laughing, but again, for the time, being called a damned anything was appalling, let alone rascal, so much so that this was a reportable outburst. Still, it waters down the effect of swearing like a sailor, if you ask me. (laughs) And in his defence, he manages to maintain the respectful sir. (laughs) He would have loved Twitter, but for the verbal abuse, he was reprimanded and ordered to be more correct in his language. And let that be a lesson to you all. <laughs> in an introduction about Bly in the Historical Records of Australia, the author notes that, quote, he was used to the rough manners of the Navy and the forceful and virile speech of the period, unquote. And so it would seem. That author also noted the bounty mutiny was only, quote, a minor episode in the history of the Navy, unquote, and did not, in fact, reflect badly on his career. Certainly the naval brass, government officials and bigwig Joseph Banks had no concerns about it, Banks describing him as civil in his deportment. <laughs> Though, of course, uh, Banks had never had the pleasure of serving under Bly on a ship, but those familiar with the Navy culture were keen to ensure that the mutiny was not seen as a measure of his abilities, and the shadow of the incident was expected to soon fade from memory. After Bly was honourably acquitted, 
At the Bounty Court Martial, the authorities had no qualms in putting him back in charge of Navy vessels. Banks was so confident, he soon had him sent back to Tahiti, albeit with a sister ship and a detachment of Marines this time, to successfully gather the breadfruit seedlings that had not been forthcoming from the Bounty's voyage. So successful was this outing that he was honoured with a membership as a Fellow of the Royal Society for Distinguished Services to Navigation and Botany. (laughs) Oh, they do carry on this lot, don't they? Anyway, in taking on that new commission, Bly would be away at sea during the mutiny trials of the ten men recovered and returned to England for prosecution. To answer the defendants' claims, they only had Bly's written evidence, and this may well have been an unfortunate circumstance, because the opinion of Bly as an incompetent bullying tyrant began to develop in the public perceptions fostered from the media about the trials at this time. The mutiny and the subsequent court-martial and trials were big news, and the brother of Fletcher Christian ran a very strong campaign to denigrate Bly and to attempt to elevate heroically his brother Christian. McCannis sums up Christian's case this way, quote, Some lauded Christian and consigned Bly to perdition as the naval super-tyrant of the 18th century. Others looked upon him as a long-suffering patient seaman and the mutineers as an ungrateful set of pirates and rapscallions seduced by the luxury of the South Sea paradise, And he sets out the evidence to support both views. We are left to try and figure out Bly's true personality from all the conjecture around the tale of the mutiny. Certainly there were many who stood by him as a good and competent leader, albeit with a short fuse and an aggressive tongue. Interestingly, during the period of Navy inaction, he had taken a job commanding some of Campbell's trading ships, working with Fletcher Christian. Campbell's trading company would ship goods from India to Australia, and Campbell himself would settle there in New South Wales, achieving great success in the colony, as I mentioned in a previous episode. McCannis, in his 1931 book, The Life of Vice Admiral William Bly, wrote that Christian had spoken of his commander with great respect, that Bly had been kind in showing him the use of the charts and the instruments. With regards to his temperament, Christian had observed, quote, that Captain Bly was very passionate, unquote, but suggesting that he was able to moderate and manage Bly's outbursts, desiring to continue sailing under his command, it seems. News of the Bounty Saga and its associated media circus would have become known to the officers of the New South Wales Corps, perhaps helping to shape their attitudes towards Bly when he became the New South Wales Governor. They may have felt him quite tainted by the mutiny, and perhaps even more vulnerable to negative feedback in England than Hunter and King had been. But we also need to consider if he did indeed provide them with any genuine reasons to reject his governorship. Certainly, as Banks had hoped, Bly was a disciplinarian and he gave orders expecting them to be followed, as would any successful Navy man. Mundell, in his book, Bly, Master Mariner, records him being described as an awkward fellow because of his supposed hair-trigger temper and propensity for impatience. A crewman who sailed under Bly on the Providence had recorded that, quote, Bly's violent tornadoes of temper were quickly followed with something like a plaster to heal the wound. Mundell wrote, claims that Bly was a cruel tyrant were countered by the ample evidence that he took great care in the health and conditions of his men. He suggests it might be easy to understand that a man steeped in Navy culture of duty might be frustrated when dealing with recalcitrant crew and slipshod work. 
He suggests that there were many times Bly let things pass and that may have been acted on severely by others. So Bly was also able to consider and moderate his own responses. The author Davis summed up his view of Bly saying, His personality was ill-suited to a role that required him to deal with difficult people who would not be disciplined. He could be extraordinarily stubborn. Usually he was amiable and made friends easily, but he could not tolerate insolence or disobedience, and if provoked enough, was inclined to lose his temper completely, use offensive intemperate language, and make serious threats. In most cases the threats were just words spoken in anger and were not followed up with actions. When he calmed down, he normally expected good relations to be resumed." Unquote. Evert, in his study of Bly's character, noted his supreme tenacity, and no doubt that was what Banks and the others would be counting on most in New South Wales. The state of the colony on his arrival in 1806 was prosperous but politically riven. Grain was generally being successfully cultivated, along with other foodstuffs required locally, including livestock. There were local merchants dealing in seal and whale products from the southern waters and undertaking regional wood harvesting. There was a lucrative wool industry emerging and development and profit being generated all around. But there were many vested interests keen to continue the status quo, and after the bounty debacle, it might be claimed that Bly had already shown he had a poor nose for sniffing out rebellious trouble and heading it off suitably early on. He felt it his duty to carry out his instructions exactly, so this would make him less yielding and pragmatic than King or Hunter, perhaps, and therefore probably a bigger target. The first indication he might not be the best diplomat for the challenging job ahead became clear on his voyage out. Perhaps he and MacArthur had more in common with their stubborn personalities than they would like to admit. The porpoise was under the command of Captain Short, who had permission to settle in New South Wales on their arrival. He was advised that the new governor had been directed to grant him 600 acres, and, having sold up in England, he travelled with all his worldly goods and his large family. During the voyage, he was under the impression that he had overall command of the ship and the others in the convoy, and was to submit that command to Bly as the new governor once they reached New South Wales. Bly, being senior in rank, believed he had supreme authority over the convoy, and as a consequence of the differing understanding each man had, a number of trivial disputes while underway escalated into violent quarrels between the men, which culminated in short actually firing warning shots at the sister ship that Bly was on. Both men were clearly acting like giant egomaniacal jerks, but it had got pretty personal. The officer that Short had ordered to fire the shots towards Bly was none other than Bly's son-in-law, Putland, avoiding his own charge of mutiny, perhaps, by following his captain's orders. <laughs> so I think we can see this is an early warning that Bly might not have had the discretion and subtlety in dealing with difficult characters that was going to be so necessary for enacting reform in New South Wales. Short clearly behaved badly, and most unwisely, because of course Bly soon had the power to make his new colonial life difficult. And despite Short later trying to apologise and reconcile the relationship somewhat, Bly was set on a course to punish. He refused to make the land grant Short expected, saying he didn't have enough detail to ensure the grant was legally requested of him. And then Bly sent Captain Short back to England to face his own court-martial for his behaviour. With no home in New South Wales, Short's poor family had to tag along, suffering their own pain because of the behaviour of the two petty men. 
Short was forced to sell all the belongings he had brought over to start their new life, and his wife and one child died on the rough return journey. So it was a severe price to pay for an argument that should never have escalated so far. Unsurprisingly, Short would seek out Bly's enemies and continue to agitate against him into the future. When the time came, Bly disembarked and was greeted at the wharf by the New South Wales Corps, presenting a guard of honour in full uniform, having marched down to the quay with a band playing the British Grenadiers, and Bly inspected Johnson's men on the walk back up to Government House. The official handover took place mid-August, with the previous Governor King retiring to a property in Parramatta while he awaited passage back to England. Bly, his daughter Mary and her husband John Putland made themselves comfortable in Government House in Sydney. The Sydney Gazette wrote on the 8th, quote, We are extremely happy to state that Governor King's successor is accompanied by his amiable daughter, Mrs. Putland, a circumstance which conveys the greatest pleasure and cannot fail being attended with the most beneficial consequences. Unquote. And indeed, Mary proved to be fond of entertaining and was the charming hostess of regular gatherings and dinners at Government House for the important people in the colony and for the official community activities, such as celebrating the Prince of Wales' birthday. She knew it was her task to help grease the social wheels that would assist with congenial governance, though in Letters Home she was also clearly aware that it would not be an easy task to win the influential over and that many would be unmoved by their efforts. In a letter home to her mother in October, she noted, quote, Papa is quite well, but dreadfully harassed by business and the troublesome set of people he has to deal with. It is known that some are trying to find something in Papa's conduct to write home about, unquote. And, quote, We entertain everyone of importance, but I am sure that many of them are secretly against my father, unquote. So they were on their guard, and his wife Elizabeth wrote advice back from England, saying that she begged him to be, quote, extremely cautious and not push things to extremes with anyone, for you have a great many enemies, unquote. So she must have known him quite well. But the most toxic and committed of all the potential enemies would turn out to be John MacArthur. In the early days, the MacArthurs dined regularly at Government House, and Elizabeth MacArthur wrote of Mary, Mrs. Putland is a very accomplished person. But as the relationship of the men soured, so too did the relationship of the women suffer, and there were other challenges for Mary as the first lady in the colony. Mary's mother sent her the latest London fashions, and she was always very well turned out, an exemplar for the elite women of Sydney, though one foray into fashion brought her some discomfort and caused quite a scene. Mary had received a fine dress in the current French style, made of delicate, almost translucent fabric, but she was uncertain if it was entirely appropriate for the church service she was to attend with her father, so, erring on the side of modesty, she wore pantaloons under the dress. Unfortunately, as they entered the building, the light shone through their figures in the doorway, making her dress all but see-through. <laughs> Some soldiers in the audience began to laugh at the sight, enraging her father and humiliating Mary into a faint. <laughs> Bly berated Colonel Johnston for his ill-mannered corps, <laughs> but the mocking seemed to furtively continue in the community for some time. Obviously, the unchivalrous incident further strained the poor relations between Bly and the undisciplined corps officers. But that unpleasantness was all ahead of them. At the beginning, it all seemed quite civil. After being sworn in, Bly received deputations offering congratulations from George Johnson, who was then in charge of the New South Wales Corps, greeting him on behalf of the military, 
from Richard Aitkins, representing the Civil Administration, and from ex-Corps officer, now prominent civilian Sydney-sider, John MacArthur, claiming to represent the free citizens of the colony. Unsurprisingly, there was no representative from the convicts waiting to welcome him to their jail, but it was a nice gesture by the others, and it seemed a positive start in relations. However, some weeks later, Bly received second welcomes, signed directly by 135 of the free inhabitants of Sydney and from 234 settlers of the Hawkesbury, most of whom would have been emancipated convicts, now making a living there. Bly might have got an inkling then of what lay ahead when this group made it clear they had no wish to have MacArthur represent them. Indeed, they held him responsible for the difficulties they had experienced, including the outrageous profiteering by MacArthur, the Corps and their cronies. They complained that MacArthur had no right to make representations on their behalf and that he would be the last man chosen to represent them, being an unfit person to do so. They included a Bill of Rights they hoped would be adopted by Bly, requesting an open market, the right to freely trade, an end to the existing extortion, and access to true justice. They wanted a reliable currency, available to reduce the abuse that had been possible by those in power. If the fault lines in the community had not already become apparent to Bly, these sentiments would serve to alert him. Months later, they thanked Bly for introducing such measures that might rescue them from the dreadful crisis of general calamity which they were suffering before his arrival. And in an unusual document, they assured Bly, quote, Under a just and benign government, we will be ready at all times, at the risk of our lives and properties, to support the same, unquote. It's sort of an odd thing to put in writing, but obviously the divisions in the settlement were more fraught than he may have imagined. But when the real crunch did come for Bly, they were not able to defend his government against the military coup, as hinted at here. Though I guess their failure to rise up against an armed militia was actually a blessing, sparing a good deal of likely bloodshed otherwise. I mean, look at the loss of life arising from an uprising against armed forces at Eureka decades later. I heard from those on the Hawkesbury in particular details about the difficulties they had been experiencing in making their settlement successful. A recent flood had added extra anxiety, as crops were lost, but they had already been struggling under the difficult currency arrangements, the necessary stock and produce and goods only being made available at inflated prices, owing to unfair monopolies. Even the freedom to trade was being controlled by those with vested interests. Bly knew he must investigate the exact state of affairs before turning his mind to the reforms required. He needed both the big picture and an understanding of the mechanisms at work in the small colony. And for many weeks he toured the outposts, talking to many stakeholders directly and investigating the complicated landscape he was now in charge of. I mentioned a recent flood that had all but destroyed the agriculture that was developing along Hawkesbury. A great deal of grain and other produce was lost, bringing food shortages and massive inflation to the colony. Many local families suffered severely from want of food and income. Bly toured the area and heard first-hand stories from the locals. His interest in their plight was well received by a great many, but when he had a number of government cattle butchered and the meat distributed amongst the desperate families, he became quite their local hero. He also allowed them to purchase stores for the next crop on credit, a sort of delayed payment scheme offering to purchase all excess grain produced afterwards at an agreed fixed price, encouraging them to gear up, clear and cultivate increased acreage with a new confidence. 
Their contempt for the Corps and the previous administration's lack of firm action was clear. So grateful to Bly were many in the district that they began a tradition of naming their own sons Bly. Many of these families thrived and became prosperous in the future, and over the generations that tradition has remained. Indeed, our 29th Prime Minister, serving from 2015 to 2018, descends from Hawkesbury settlers and is named Malcolm Bly Turnbull. <laughs> Certainly, when Bly arrived, the Rum Corps officers still maintained a strong hold on the wholesale trade of spirits in New South Wales, as was mentioned in the previous episode. One of Bly's direct instructions from England was to dismantle this trade once and for all. Now, how the Home Office expected him to enforce such changes when he was to rely on the soldiers commanded by these very same men for supporting any strategy he devised for enforcement is a mystery to me. Again, I wonder why the British did not recall the entire Corps and start afresh. I don't understand the reason for not doing so, though at its greatest extent the regiment comprised of 886 men, so I guess there was no option to fly out a couple of jumbo loads of otherwise unoccupied soldiers to replace them. Still, it seems a fruitless exercise to send a new governor with strict and unpopular regulations to enforce if you cannot root out the corruption in the military that is to carry out his instructions and help enforce his new laws. When Bly arrived, there were 685 men in the Corps and 66 civil officers working for the government. Brunton suggests that around this time, probably one-third of all Port Jackson's publicans were men of the Corps, though the establishments were no doubt being run by their wives. <laughs> That's a lot of your potential enforcers making a good living from the contraband you're trying to regulate. Of the rum corps still dominating this trade, despite Hunter and King's orders to gain control, McKenna's wrote, quote, Defence of their privileges was conducted with so much cunning and astuteness, and with so few scruples about the means employed, that gradually the civil power fell into abeyance. The governor became almost a cipher, and the population was divided into two classes, those who sold rum and those who drank it, unquote. He recorded one correspondent reflecting, quote, for the long period of 20 years, the New South Wales Corps have collectively aggrandised themselves by the acquirement and accumulation of considerable landed and personal property, and having at their disposal the force that has been destined to uphold the obedience of the laws. They have, at length, gathered to themselves the most unlimited authority, rendering themselves paramount to civil power, changed not only the very forms of justice, but have annihilated her very existence in the Territory. Unquote. So, there was an awareness of the depth of the corruption, just not the capacity for a governor to turn it round, under the circumstances the English government left in place, from Hunter onwards. It would be a pretty impossible task no matter who they sent, but I can now see why Banks and others were keen to send a man who might appear fearless in standing up to unruly subordinates. So with no further support than Hunter and King were given, indeed with the corrupt arrangements even more entrenched, now that some of the senior officers had since retired and become powerful in the civilian community, Bly was to set about enacting the will of the Home Office on the ground in the colony. He was a stickler for the proper process in relation to land grants, and he put a number of people offside by delaying or failing to approve grants they expected. King had been in charge for about 72 months, granting an average of more than 1,000 acres each month. Bly, on the other hand, in his almost 17 months in command, granted only 128 acres per month on average, 
So those expecting land would have been greatly frustrated by the decline in government largesse and the formality and delays involved. That being said, (laughs) it was pretty quick off the mark to have King grant him some prime land in Sydney and in Parramatta. 1,345 acres in total before King retired, and a further 600 acres were granted to John and Mary Putland. Bly then returned the favour for King, or his wife at least, adding another 790-acre parcel to their holdings. He also helped himself to stock from the government herds and had some of his own buildings constructed at government expense, suggesting he was setting up what would be model farms to demonstrate good practice. But it was all a little dodgy, and these actions were noted by those who would later allege Bly's own corruption in the difficult periods ahead. In his defence, Banks, in trying to coax Bly into the job in the first place, had specifically told him that the whole of the government power and stores would be at his disposal and for his financial benefit. So taking land and using the resources of the government may have seemed part of the completely legitimate arrangement to Bly. And Davis suggests there was no evidence Bly made any profit from the lands granted. Indeed, that he completely abandoned them after his return to England, the later governor cancelling his title and redistributing the lands to others. But that's not much of a defence. There may have been a completely different outcome, had his stay in New South Wales been a long and successful one. After investigating the present arrangements in the colony, in early October, Bly introduced new port regulations, which gave his government more control over the shipping comings and goings, and of the local boat building. Bly saw the suppression of the rum trade as the highest priority, confirming his intent in a dispatch, noting that prohibiting the barter in spirits was crucial. Liquor was still serving as unofficial currency in the colony to some extent, and it was deemed imperative to not only remove the monopoly and trade control from the core, but to reduce the supply generally to limit the societal damage and excessive drinking it had created. On the 1st of November, Bly issued orders that prohibited the barter of spirits and other liquors as payment for any goods or labour. He saw this introduction in particular as, quote, absolutely necessary to bring labour to a due value and support the farming interests, unquote. The penalties for continuing to do so were harsh, with convicts to receive 100 lashes and one year of hard labour. A freed convict would have all assistance from the government withdrawn, serve three months in prison and incur a £20 fine. A free settler would likewise lose all government assistance they might have had, plus pay a £50 fine. And to encourage compliance and discovery, half of all the fines collected would be given to the informers who reported such infringements. Tighter control on the shipping would have been an irritant, but the prohibition on the barter of spirits would have been an extreme deprivation for the men involved, and it polarised the community between those who gained through the current arrangements and those who did not. In January of 1807, Bly proclaimed that all promissory notes were to be redeemed only in sterling, and not in goods in kind, further limiting the trend in barter. By mid-February, he also prohibited the importation of stills for alcohol production. The intent was to reduce the number of illegal stills operating and thus reduce the consumption of the valuable grain required too. One man wrote to England, whinging of his losses to the new reforms, complaining that Bly was a tyrannical villain and a reptile who had been remarkably successful in suppressing the traffic in spirits. So there you go. Such reform policies were creating resentment and aggravation amongst all those who had managed to suppress change in the past. 
because Bly was proving to be difficult to manipulate, and his success was being noted and appreciated by Castlereagh and the others back in England. In another regulatory measure, brought in at the end of February 1807, all trading ships bringing in goods were to unload only at the wharves at Port Jackson, thus allowing formal monitoring of all inward goods. So we should move on perhaps and see how these firmly introduced regulations impacted on the good people of Sydney. While the freed convicts and farming settlers would have been pleased with the changes, clearly some who had gained so much from the earlier dodgy arrangements had a lot to lose, and one of those people was John MacArthur. We spoke about MacArthur himself having a pretty volatile temper in the previous episode, and then he was a man with great ambition for himself and his family, who became furious whenever any obstacle was put in the way of those plans. McCannis suggested he might either be, quote, extolled as a patriot, nation-maker, despot-destroyer, and great pioneer of the wool industry, or criticised as a conspirator, land-grabber, profiteer, and extortioner, sucking leech-like the very lifeblood from the young colony, a man qualmless, implacable, predatory, and the leader of the most rapacious gang of traitors this country has ever seen, unquote. <laughs> Good Lord, you don't want to get on the wrong side of mechanics, do you? What a description. But he adds, quote, In spite of certain innate faults, MacArthur remains one of the most noteworthy of the Australian pioneers, unquote. He'd also been described as, quote, Keen as a razor and rapacious as a shark. His one chief idea in life, to acquire wealth. Unquote. Well, that's not so unusual, or even objectionable, depending on how he might go about it. But McCannis suggested he continually took advantage, not only of the convicts and settlers, but preyed on his fellows, the soldiers in the corps as well, relieving them of their small land grants in exchange for rum, often when they were too drunk to realise what they were trading. King had written of him disparagingly, saying, quote, He came here in 1790 more than £500 in debt, and is now worth at least £20,000. His fortune enables him to boast of his indifference of whatever change happens to him, unquote, suggesting MacArthur had little concern about the court-martial King had sent him to, nor might he have for any other penalties or chastisements that Bly might impose on him. He would fight all with every ounce of energy and would prevail on his influential friends for support in the expectation of coming out triumphant, as he did in many cases. Indeed, every governor had written back to England with reports of MacArthur's recalcitrance, but he'd managed to find enough supporters amongst the ranks of the influential there to avoid any real punishment. He continued to be an aggravation to future governors, including Macquarie and Darling too. But to date, Bly had been the most stubborn and resistant to his influence, and the animosity which developed between them would escalate to the point of disaster. So perhaps MacArthur was both villain and hero too. We just need to ponder the percentages. <laughs> and, as suggested, he most certainly made his mark on the Australian wool industry. We spoke a little of MacArthur's background in the previous episode and his arrival with his wife Elizabeth in 1788. I think I mentioned his father was a tailor and mercer, but did I also record that he was once apprenticed to a staymaker, a manufacturer of women's corsets? <laughs> this employment gave him the nickname Jack Bodice. <laughs> I don't imagine he would care for that nickname. After his run-in with King and his triumphant return to New South Wales, no longer a member of the New South Wales Corps, but a free citizen, he was ready to pursue his business interests full-time during Bly's governorship, 
He had already successfully navigated the attempts by Hunter and King to rein in his business activities and had effectively contributed to seeing them both off. But while his relationship with Bly at least looked to start well, it failed to remain healthy. Six months after his cordial greeting of the newly arrived Bly, where he assumed his place in the self-proclaimed elite of the fledgling colony, they had fallen out over the various new regulations, and the MacArthurs ceased attending government house dinners or inviting the Bly family to Elizabeth Farm, so it will be important to look in more detail at a few relevant incidents involving MacArthur in particular. Australian High Court Judge Justice Herbert Evatt QC, later Australian Attorney General from 1941 to 49, published in 1931 the book called Rum Rebellion, a study of the overthrow of Governor Bly by John MacArthur and the New South Wales Corps, which provides a lot of reflection on the legal difficulties for the governors and the rebellion and aftermath. Evatt, as an expert in the legal aspects, actually suggests the lead-up to the rebellion can be illustrated and read through five important court cases that preceded Bly's overthrow, almost all with MacArthur as antagonist. One was the case of the promissory note, two the case of Wentworth, three the case of the stills, four the case of the Parramatta, and five a case of sedition. And these do indeed make a good lens to view the growing instability. We'll have a look at each of those incidents in a little more detail next time as they unfolded and ramped up the resentment and recalcitrance of MacArthur, the New South Wales Corps and their allies. So we'll finish up here for today. Bly's reforms will continue to aggravate the previously powerful and a number of the incidents I just mentioned will ignite a fuse that will cause Bly's downfall. For this month's podcast recommendation, I'm leaving the history genre for science. Terrible Lizards is all about the dinosaurs. Dr. David Hone and Izzy Lawrence present a podcast which is full of reliable, current, scientific information about what is known about dinosaurs of various kinds today. And while it is aimed at grown-ups, it is relatable and will be of interest to younger dino fans too. As always, I'll put a link to the Terrible Lizards podcast in the episode references at the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au website. By the way, the long-awaited list of all the podcast recommendations I've made in the past episodes is finally visible via a new tab on the australianhistoriespodcast.com.au webpage too. So have a look there if you'd like to review some of the past recommendations. Okay, that's it. More soon as we see the reforms beginning to bite and some previously powerful men digging their heels in, making life difficult for Bly and his supporters. Some are feeling they should be above the law and will take every opportunity to test the constraints of governance. But meanwhile, have a safe and happy few weeks. Talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.